We're continuing in our discipleship series, Grace Principles for Parenting, and the subject this evening is shaping your child's character in parenting, shaping your child's character in parenting. Our primary scripture passage is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, and I want to read those here in just a moment, Uh, but before I do that, I want to give you a little bit of review of where we've come from, particularly in the last session. We looked at the importance of shaping the minds of our children, and I gave you a quote from someone by the name of Charles Malik, and here's what he said. He said, the problem is not only to save souls, but to save minds. If you win the whole world and lose the mind of the world, you will soon discover you have not won the world. Indeed, it may turn out that you have actually lost the world. And our focus was on 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5. And how we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. As we do that, we are able to shape our children's minds in how they think about knowledge and truth. Knowledge denotes understanding. It's a gift from God. And God is the one who is the embodiment of truth. And he communicates it to us through creation, through his word, and through his son. And truth is that which corresponds to reality. We don't get to define truth. Uh, We live according to the truth because it is what actually defines reality. We also shape our children's minds in how they think about God. The question ever before us is, how do we think about God? What is our God concept? How do we think about who he is? And we're asking some very basic but very foundational questions. Does God care for me? Is he near to me? Does he have a plan for me? And does he have the power to help me? And as we shape our children's minds, we're helping them think about knowledge, and we're helping them think about God, and then we're helping them think about how they relate to others and how they relate to the world around them. And there are moral and ethical implications to every part of our lives. So how we think about knowledge and see that, and then how we view God, impacts how we morally interact with people around us, and what the ethical implications of our lives are. So we want to be intentional about praying for the minds of our children. We want to be intentional about teaching them a biblical worldview. And also be confident and courageous enough to challenge them when they have unbiblical ways of thinking. Now I want to give you a definition of character as we move forward with shaping your child's character in parenting. And this is just a simple dictionary definition, but here it is. Uh, Character is the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. The mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. The word character comes from a root word which means engraved mark or symbol or meaning an imprint. So we think about character, it's been referred to as the imprint uh, on the soul. And it can be traced back to the whole idea of something being engraved so that it's evident. So, for example, in the ancient world, a character was the stamp or the marking that you would find that would be in wax or it would be in clay, and it represented something else. Henry Clay Trumbull explained in 1894 in his work, Character Shaping and Character Showing, he said it was another name for the signature or the monogram, or the personal superscription or trademark of the potter, 
the painter, the sculptor, or the writer. As time went along, the word became associated with the some uh, qualities that define a person, kind of the comprehensive things that would define uh, who a person is and how they present themselves and how they're seen in the world. So in that regard, it, it involves the intellect, it involves the ideas that a person has, it speaks to the motives that energize a person, that motivate them to do what they do. It relates to a person's temperament, how they judge and view the world around them, their emotion and how they process and how they regulate that, as well as their behavior and even their imaginations. What do they care about? What do they think about? What are they uh, drawn toward? Uh, William Stratton Bruce wrote in The Formation of Christian Character, he said, character is nature and nurture. It is nature cultured and disciplined so that natural tendencies are brought under the sway of the moral motive. The natural individuality marks off a person from others by clear and specific differences. But this individuality may be non-moral. To produce character, it must be brought under discipline and organization into the structure of a true moral being. Our main text for this session is 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to give you a bit of backdrop for 2 Peter chapter 1 before I read these verses. I actually made reference to a couple of them this morning in the message. But Peter was writing, I think, to the same group of believers who received his first letter. He wrote the letter uh, from Rome in the late 60s. And from the content uh, of the letter, it seems that Peter had received reports of false teachers in and among the churches in Asia Minor. And he wanted to address the concerns about those false teachers that had infiltrated the church and to try to help shape the thinking of the people who were in those churches. And he wanted people to stand firm. He wanted them uh, to be instructed on how to stand firm and to understand what God had given them so that they could stand firm. Now, also within this, there was something going on with the churches. And what was going on with the churches is that they were struggling with persecution. They were struggling with suffering. And Peter's theme is evident. He's instructing them to grow in maturity. And the way they were to grow in maturity was through what God had given them and through the Word of God so that they would have what they needed and so they would be able to go in the direction that God wanted them to go in. So I'll begin reading in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, and I'm going to read through verse 7. And this is going to be our framework for the remainder of this session. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now let's look at this phrase by phrase before we unpack uh, the second half of this passage in particular. 
He tells us that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. So what does that mean? It means that we have great and precious promises so that we can share in the divine nature and so that we can escape the corruption of the world. Remember, this is the context that Peter's writing in, that these people are they're suffering, they're facing persecution, they're dealing with false teachers infiltrating the church, they're dealing with a harsh environment outside of the church, and he says, listen, you've got everything you need according to the promises of God so that you can share in this divine nature and you can escape the corruption of the world. Remember what a Christian is? A Christian is a person with a new heart. A Christian is a person with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. A Christian is a person who ultimately is producing Christ-like fruit. So I would say at the heart of this is God's sufficiency. Now we talk about inerrancy of Scripture. Inerrancy of Scripture is incredibly important because it says that the Bible is God-breathed. It's given to us by God. It's trustworthy. It's true in every regard. But the question is, as it applies to our lives, is it sufficient? Is it enough? Has God given us what we need? Do we have what we need in order to live this life? And Peter's emphatic answer is yes. And your kids, if they come to know Christ, will have everything that they need to live this life as well. He writes, for this very reason. Now you want to note the connector here. And what he's saying is that because of what God has already done in granting us everything we need to live the Christian life, we are to do our part. He refers to the power of God to live out the promises of God. Because you have a new nature and you have a new ability to overcome the corruption of the world and your own flesh, he says, for this very reason, make every effort. Now herein lies part of the tension that I was referring to in the subject of being led by the Spirit. We rest in Christ. We have everything that we need. It's not about our uh, ability to carry it out. But then in the same vein, we're told to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. This is a very similar idea here. Make every effort. These steps are not optional. These, this is the active application of your faith. And he says, supplement your faith. Now, this is an interesting phrase because this was used to refer to the, the training and the staging of a grand chorus for some kind of high celebration uh, and some kind of uh, maybe presentation as far as this idea of supplementing something. But does this mean that your faith in Jesus is lacking? No, that's not what it means. Faith in and of itself is personal reliance on the Lord and on his word. So we would say that faith is our objective belief in the truth about who Jesus is. It's the foundation for spiritual life. And he's basically saying to us, listen, God has gifted you with faith. Now you've got to live out the faith that God has given you. And this is where it applies to our homes. And I think this is sort of lavish in a sense because He's telling us to bring alongside of our faith a determined effort to fully and completely 
provide the things that are mentioned here in these following verses. And somebody referred to these verses as a symphony of grace. Uh, To the melody line of faith, he leads believers to add harmony and a blend of these Christian virtues, which he lists without any real explanation or description. So think about how this connects, for example, to Galatians 2 and 19 and 20 and verse 20 uh, particularly. I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God in the flesh, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he says, listen, I've got what I need because I'm crucified with Christ, but now I'm living this life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, and I'm doing this very thing that Peter is calling us to do. So what I want to do in the time that we have together in this session is share with you seven qualities in which to shape the character of your children. Seven qualities in which to shape the character of your children. I'm going to move fairly quickly with these uh, just so we'll have time to cover all of them. I think each of these qualities in the original text, having the, the article before it, signifies that Peter is referencing specific qualities and not just general ones. And what I mean by that is faith is the starting point for the Christian, but then there are some specific things that we're to add to that or to make operative in our lives. What does faith do? Faith connects to vision. It connects to vision because it causes us to look to Jesus Uh, Just as the optic nerve feeds the brain with images that are in the physical order, faith is the nerve that feeds the soul with visions of the spiritual order. Faith not only connects to vision, but faith connects to aspiration. Is it not true that if it's God's will for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus, then that ought to be the vision that we're working toward? Like we ought to be comparing ourselves to Christ himself and recognizing that there are areas of our lives that we want to grow in. We're never going to reach perfection in this life. Our children certainly aren't going to reach perfection. But if we don't give them something to aspire to, a model to follow after, then they're going to follow after the ways of the world. And faith, therefore, connects to transformation. It's vision, it's aspiration, and it's transformation. Because we want to see them changed into the likeness of Jesus. Now the word add here is in the imperative. And that's important because it comes from the English word uh, that gives us the words chorus or choreograph or choreography. And in ancient Greece, uh, the state established a chorus, but the director would actually pay the expenses for the training of the chorus. And the word came to be used of one who provides for or supports others with abundance. So every believer is to furnish, supply, or support his or her life with these virtues. And he gives us these virtues in which we are to grow in the Christian life. And I think they serve sort of like character sketches uh, that are designed to stir us toward uh, faithfulness. Now, I will note here, just from a literary standpoint, that uh, these sorts of lists were a common literary form both inside and outside of the Bible. Uh, Peter's list that we're about to consider is not exhaustive. It's by way of illustration. But I think he probably chose these because they're the opposites of the evil characteristics of the false teachers that he's going to expose in chapter 2. 
So anytime when you're looking at a scripture passage like this, you got to ask, what's, what's the purpose for why he put this here in, in this particular place? Well, we can overlay the contrast between these virtuous characteristics and then the evil characteristics that he's going to expose when he gets a little bit further into the book. So let's start with the first quality, and that is you're to shape your children's character in goodness. You're to shape your children's character in goodness. And he says specifically, supplement your faith with goodness. What's goodness? It's the divinely endowed ability to excel in that which is good. It it means moral excellency or virtue. So what we're asking is what is it that makes a person good? What is it that makes a person excellent at being a human being? And the answer is the ideal person is Jesus Christ. We find our goodness in him. Our virtue is in imitating him. Now this word, particularly as it's translated virtue in some of your translations probably, has a very rich history. Both Plato and Aristotle used it. In fact, in Virtues and Vices, Aristotle wrote this. He said, fine things are the objects of praise, base things of blame. And at the head of the fine stand the virtues. At the head of the base, the vices. Consequently, the virtues are objects of praise. And also, the causes of the virtues are objects of praise. And the things that accompany the virtues and that result in them and their works, while the opposite are the objects of of blame. So when you think goodness, you're thinking virtue. And virtue is first a disposition before it's an action. Now we don't use this term very often uh, anymore, but it, it, I can remember uh, hearing the statement made of people, uh, he's a virtuous person or she's a virtuous person. That's a pretty good description. If you want somebody to describe you as something, it would be that person's filled with goodness. They are a virtuous person in the way they live their lives. And when a person fulfills who they've been created to be in Christ and redeemed to be in Christ, that's a reflection of goodness. So think about the themes in the scripture. A good tree is going to bear good fruit. Good soil is going to produce something that is good. It's going to be productive. We have these ideas, but a bad tree is going to bear bad fruit and you will know them by their fruit. So what we're trying to instill in our children is a disposition so that the disposition will result in actions so that they will be good in their lives and be people of virtue. Titus 3 and verse 8 says, this saying is trustworthy. He says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. So I say to you that a life of goodness or a life of virtue means to live a life that is worthy of praise. And it means to do the right things regardless of of the outcome. In our children, we want them to be shaped in goodness, in loving God, loving us as parents, doing their best in school, forming a strong work ethic, treating others with love and respect, 
These are the things that we're aiming for as we raise our children. We want them to do the right thing, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because there is goodness and virtue in their heart through the redemption that is in Christ. Matthew 5 and verse 16 says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So here's a point of application. Work to demonstrate an environment in your home where virtue thrives. Work to demonstrate an environment in your home where virtue thrives. So what are some ways that we can do that? We can do it by sharing stories of faith and what God is doing in our own lives. I think we can do it through living with a culture of gratitude in our home for the most basic of things. We're not just taking for granted what we have. We can do it by demonstrating good stewardship and giving our children an example to follow in that. We show examples to them of virtuous living so that they understand that that's commendable. That's something to be celebrated. That's something to be aspired to. Um, We ask good questions and discuss life situations and virtuous responses. So for example, uh, especially as children grow or as grandchildren grow, you're using those teachable moments where they're filtering things that are happening around them or they're, they're seeing things that are going on in the world and you're having a conversation with them about, well, what do you think about that? How are you processing that? What would be a response of goodness in that situation? What do you think a person who honors Christ would do in that particular circumstance? And it's that give and take where they're thinking about these things, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because you're actually building virtue and goodness in their hearts. Second part, the second quality is to shape your children's character in knowledge. And he says here, uh, to supplement your faith or add to your faith uh, goodness with knowledge. Now, we already covered this last week, and I, but I want to spend a little bit more time on it because it's here in this list. Uh, the word for knowledge here is specific knowledge, not just general knowledge, meaning that it is full knowledge. It is knowledge that is growing. Um, it, it's not just intellectual knowledge. It's not just knowing stuff to know it but rather it's practical knowledge of being able to understand and apply things that come with experience. Wisdom and knowledge are both recurring themes in the Bible that are related, as we've talked about, but they're not synonymous. Wisdom is the ability to to discern or to judge what is right or true or lasting. Knowledge, on the other hand, is information that is gained through experience and reasoning, and God wants us to have a knowledge of Him and what He expects of us. So think about it this way. This is practical wisdom gained in the exercise of moral excellence. We gain the knowledge of how God wants us to live through his word. He's telling us not just what to think, but how to think. Not just what to say, but how to say it. Not just how to behave, but why we behave in every imaginable situation. And the word implies that we are to use our minds to gain insight into the circumstances around us and seek to know the the moral quality of why we're doing what we're doing. So we put our knowledge to work by using common sense in everything that we think and we say and we do. Now look back at verse 3. He indicates that you were given intimate knowledge through salvation. Here's what he says. 
through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So where do we get it from? We get it from the fact that God gave it to us. The Bible commentator R.C.H. Linsky said, A wise demeanor with a ready perception of what is useful or harmful, of what is to be done or what is to be avoided, is what comprises this type of knowledge. The knowledge comes from what God has revealed to us. Now, point of application. The Lord wants us, as his children, to grow in intimate knowledge of him so that we can be sanctified and shaped to be like Christ. And the Lord wants your children, by faith, to grow in intimate knowledge of him so that they can be sanctified and grow in the likeness of Christ. And again, this involves uh, interacting with your children and letting them think through not only what to think, but why to think it and why that's important. And then uh, the next quality is to shape your children's character with self-control. In this chain, he moves to knowledge with self-control. What is self-control? Fundamentally, it's the ability or the power to regulate or to rule your personal life so that you're not driven or dominated, as the Apostle John puts it, uh, by the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or the pride of life. And uh, I think that uh, passion, uh, pleasure, and pride are forces in the human heart that can very much energize negative behavior patterns. We know that. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So what is self-control? It means to be in control of your attitudes, about processes, desires, passions, patterns, habits. And the goal is that they do not dictate behavior. Now, the New Testament often compares the Christian to an athlete who has to discipline themselves if they're going to gain the victory. And self-control literally means holding oneself in their desires and to control them in a way that they're not just loosely moving through life. And, of course, this is also a fruit of the Spirit. So it's not just an intentional adding, but it is also the fruit of the Spirit. So this is very direct. But if you don't teach your children a measure of self-control, they're not going to understand what that means. If you don't teach them a measure of self-control as, as it relates to how they process their emotions how they deal with defeat, uh, how they deal with difficulties, how they deal with challenging people, uh, how they deal with the things that they're blessed with. All those things have to be under uh, a a spirit of self-control. And ultimately, is this not part of what maturity is about? Uh, Like a little baby doesn't have that, they don't have that governor on them. They don't have that regulator on them to be able to process all those things. And from early on, you're shaping them. And I think one of the basic characteristics of infancy is a lack of self-control. So not only do babies need diapers, they have to be carried. And they have to be carried carefully. And the reason they have to be carried carefully is because they lack the control and the coordination to sit up to begin with, much less to, to walk or to run. And by the same token, development of self-control is a sure sign of growth and maturity. Now, we find a, a, an example in the Old Testament of what happened when God's people uh, were not 
practicing self-control and the trouble that it got them into. You might remember in the early chapters of Isaiah in the Old Testament, the prophet pronounced judgment on the nation of Israel because having turned away from the Lord, they lacked self-control. And here's what the scripture says in part in Isaiah 3 and verse 4 and 5. He says, I will make youths their leaders and unstable rulers will govern them. And the people will oppress one another, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will act arrogantly toward the old and the worthless toward the honorable. What was Isaiah doing? He was warning them uh, that the objects of their trust were getting them in all sorts of trouble because their leaders who were traditionally respected were going to be replaced by those who were incapable I don't know, maybe this could have some modern application to our culture and society as well. But the bottom line is the reason they got what they, were, got, what they got is because they deserved it. And they deserved it because they were immature and they lacked self-control. So let me state it to you this way about your kids and your grandkids. If you don't teach them to have self-control, the absence of self-control in their lives can have devastating results. And no better place, there's no better place than in the home to teach them to measure life and to go through life with self-control. A man by the name of um, Marco Okaboni, a UCLA professor of psychiatry, was interviewed. And he said about a year ago, uh, he was at the World Economic Forum, and uh, he was interviewed and along with another professor from the University of Michigan, who's a professor of social sociology, or psychology rather, by the name of Richard Nisbet. And he plainly said this. He said, I'd rather have my son be high in self-control than in intelligence. Now, why is that? Because self-control is the key to a well-functioning life. Because our brain makes us easily susceptible to all sorts of influences. And you can be really smart, really capable, have really high potential, but if you can't govern the thing, it's not going to do you any good. If we had time tonight, we all could give examples of people that we've known. I hope we're not the examples, but we could at least give examples of people that we know that had all sorts of potential in life. Really smart, really capable, high aptitude, really gifted just naturally at certain things and they tapped out and the reason they tapped out early and didn't accomplish what they could have accomplished is because they had no measure of self-control they couldn't manage their own life and we want to shape our children's character with self-control so here's my question and point of application how do you model self-control for your children what do they see in you when you manage the basics of life? What do they see in you, listen, when you're under pressure? You'll find out what measure of self-control you have when the pressure's on. Everybody can look like they get a good measure of self-control until till the temperature gets high. And whatever we're modeling for them, if our anger's out of control or our worry's out of control or our management of the basics of life in our home is out of control, our kids are going to see that. And a lot of times they're going to follow in the pattern and pattern themselves after that. The next quality is that you're to shape your children's character 
with endurance. He says self-control with endurance. Now this word literally means to abide or to dwell under. It means endurance and doing what is right. So I like to think about it in terms of spiritual staying power um, that would die before it gave in. The word is a compound verb from under and to remain. And it paints a picture of steadfastly bearing up under a, a very heavy load. And we learn not to turn aside and to endure when our faith is tested by trials. James chapter 1 and verse 2 and following says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, endurance or perseverance is slightly different from the patience that is mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit in that patience or long-suffering deals with trials or hardships caused by people and perseverance deals with trials caused by things, situations, and circumstances. Now, obviously, there's some overlap to this. It's not completely bifurcated, but the, the idea being that this is a little bit broader ca category. And Christian steadfastness is the courageous acceptance of anything that life can do to us. And yet we see, even in the worst event, an opportunity to grow and to glorify God. And what we need to be able to do that is we need a never-quit mentality and we need a spirit of endurance that can get us through. Now, I read an incredible story uh, about three men, uh, Charlie Engel, uh, Ray Zahab, and Kevin Lynn, who probably know endurance from a physical standpoint better than most, because for 111 days, they ran the equivalent of two marathons a day in order to cross the entire Saharan desert on foot. Now, this is phenomenal. I, I don't even know how they did that, but 111 days, the equivalent of two marathons a day in the harshest of conditions. And they said that they touched the waters at Senegal, and then they made their way through the Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Libya, and Egypt to touch the waters of the Red Sea. And along the way, the trio faced blazing afternoons of over 100-degree weather, uh, jarring, freezing nights, sandstorms, tendonitis, violent sickness, and the usual aches and pains and blisters. But the biggest challenge they faced is summed up in one word, and that word is water. Finding it in its purest, cleanest form is a bit of a chore when you're out in the middle of nowhere. And crossing the Saharan Desert on foot is an amazing accomplishment. But just as commendable are these marathon finishers. Spiritual application. Christians who finish their lives still growing, still serving, not quitting. Do you know it's a testimony to the grace of God when there's ordinary folks who've lived a faithful Christian life, they've managed their families well, and then they finish that race, and the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. A lot of times we only think about the people who are prominent, or the people who are popular in Christian culture or whatever. And we think about, oh, they're really the faithful ones. Listen, the faithful ones are the people that nobody knows. There's no attention. There, there's no accolades. Just run in the race. And any of us can be in that category. 
What about husbands and wives who stay faithful to each other till death do us part? That's a commendable endurance. What about church members who weather rough patches in life and in the church and still remain joyful and loving and faithful? You see, that's the quality we want to instill in our children so that they can persevere in a sin-fallen world and be who God created them to be. This is a battle-but-don't-break-down mentality. This is a struggle, but don't quit. And as success is defined differently for everyone, perseverance can be applied to anything that you set your mind to. This endurance is a result of your confidence in the Lord, your motivation, and your continued desire to keep improving. So point of application. Teach your children to finish what they start. And teach your children to endure when it gets difficult. Now I've shared this by way of an example before, but one of the things that I was taught as a child was that from early on is I could start or try anything that I wanted to start or try, but I had to finish it. You want to join that team? Fine, you can join that team. You'll be finishing the season on that team as well. You will not quit. You want to start on that project? That's fine. You go ahead and start that project, but you're going to finish it. You don't have to like it. You don't have to do it again. You don't have to sign up again the next time, but you're going to finish what you started. And that little simple foundation that I got in that regard caused me to do a couple of things. It caused me to be careful about what I chose to do to begin with because I knew I was going to have to finish it whether I liked it or not. But then that flowed over into bigger things in life when I felt like quitting. I was pursuing a certain educational pursuit or I was engaged in a certain calling in ministry or a particular difficulty or season and I'm thinking I don't like this right now it's not easy but I started it because I started I'm gonna finish it and it gave me an endurance of how to deal with things when it got difficult as well that's one of the most important things you can teach your kids Teach them to finish what they start and teach them to endure when it gets difficult. So many people are quitters. They're quitters. They quit on their families. They quit on their life pursuits. They quit on the Lord. They just quit. And we don't want to be quitters. We don't want our kids to be quitters. Now, they can change course. And they may be, well, this is, this, I found out this was not for me. So I'm going to change my direction. Support them and encourage them in that as long as they're moving in a direction and help them to figure out whatever it is that God's created them to be uniquely. Because sometimes we can get off on a track that's not the best for us. We can get off on a, an educational pursuit or we can get off on a vocation that maybe is not the best thing for us. But we're not quitting, we're redirecting. And if you teach your children that, it'll be a blessing to them. And then the next quality is to shape your children's character with godliness. He says, in your perseverance, godliness. Peter Lang said, it is the disposition in which the consideration of God controls the whole life, in which he's held in supreme honor, his approval is sought, and the doing of which constitutes its own happiness. So I, I take that to mean this. It means a proper response to the things of God, which produces obedience and righteous living. 
Now, for Peter, the term godliness was explicitly defined in his first letter. Let me give you a point of reference here. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and they will glorify God on the day he visits. Godliness desires a right relationship with God and with people. It brings the sanctifying presence of God into all the experiences of life. So let's, let's think about this another way. Godliness simply means God-likeness. Godliness is God-likeness. The word means to worship well. And in the Greek thinking, godliness encompassed all of the rituals that were related to worship and all the loyalty that was given to the pagan gods, offering respect to all that is divine. But from a biblical worldview, it's offering the worship and the loyalty that is due to God alone. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16 says, And most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And that phrase in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16 was a part of an introduction to an ancient hymn. And in the ESV, the verse actually reads, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, you remember what a mystery is in the New Testament, right? Uh, A mystery, when it's presented in the New Testament, refers to the things of God that were once hidden and then were later revealed through Christ and the Holy Spirit. So the mystery of godliness is the heart of the Christian faith. And godliness is to live completely for God and to be joyful about it. We might use the word pious or reverent, to describe that kind of a life. And that's what we want to shape in our kids. We we want them to understand what a godly person looks like. We we hopefully are giving them flashes of that, of a good example, so that we're illustrating that for them. But again, we're wanting them to aspire to that, to, to to a higher calling, to a more virtuous life. That's what we want them to be. And then the next quality is that we're to shape our children's character in brotherly affection. Shape your children's character in brotherly affection. This is the kind of affection that exists between brothers' familial affection. It's the feeling of kindness or mutual understanding and care that might exist among close family members. And in this context, brotherly love exists because of our mutual relationship to Christ and in fulfillment of God's command that we love one another. So this is the same idea as Hebrews 13.1, for example. Uh, Let brotherly love continue. Uh, Other translations call it mutual affection or concern uh, for others. And that's the idea of it. Uh, Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. And we find these examples of, of just how to treat people in the scripture. So, so part of what you're doing with your kids and your grandkids is you're instilling in them that there's a right way to treat people. This is how you treat people. This is how you act toward people with a brotherly affection. Now think about the biblical examples of people practicing this type of brotherly kindness. You remember after David ascended to the throne of Israel, he asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? 
to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. He had no relationship with Saul's extended family, yet because of his close relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan, he wanted to show brotherly kindness to Jonathan's family. And you remember the rest of the story, Mephibosheth became the recipient of David's kindness. What about when the church at Antioch heard that the church in Jerusalem was suffering from a famine? They gave sacrificially to help relieve their brothers and sisters' financial burden. That was an act of brotherly kindness. An example for us would be when we hear that people are suffering because of the Ukrainian crisis and the refugee situation, and we're able to give and to contribute so that our brothers and sisters in Christ in Moldova can minister to these people and also lead some of them to faith. That's brotherly kindness. We're one in Christ. Uh, brotherly kindness is the product of obeying the commandment in Philippians 2 and verse 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. You're just instilling this in a practical way in your kids. That other people are valuable to God. And because they're valuable to God, we need to treat them as God would want us to treat them. This is a virtuous life. And if you can do that and you can instill that in them and you can use those teachable moments to say, we're going we're gonna to show kindness to this person because God has shown kindness to us. Then that's a teachable moment. And then finally, you're to shape your children's character in love. This is the last quality of the virtues that are mentioned. Shape your children's character in love. Now it comes as no surprise, if you're following here, that the golden chain finishes on the link of love. This is the self-sacrificial love that chooses and commits itself to the best interest of other people. It is the love that God has given us. It is the love that exists between believers so that the world will know that we are his disciples. It's the love that 1 John 4 and verse 16 speaks of. And we come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. And note that each of these qualities is added by faith to the previous quality so that they build on each other and the whole of life is strengthened. Now, let's close the, the loop here uh, with two concluding verses in 2 Peter 1 in verse 8 and 9, the verses that follow from this chain. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. So Peter says, listen, Here's the qualities. These are the virtues. You want to build character? Then add all these things to your faith. Put the building blocks in place. And we want to put these building blocks in place for our children and in our homes. Because we want them to be people that honor Christ and their lives honor Christ. And Peter says here, if you possess these qualities, listen to the modifier, in increasing measure. That's growth. That's discipleship. That's prog progress toward maturity. They will keep you from being useless or unfruitful.
Now let's contrast the life that God looks at and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into thy rest. With the life that God looks at and says, that's a shame because that was useless and that was unfruitful. He says the person who lacks these things is blind. They're short-sighted. And they've forgotten the cleansing from their past sins. If these seven qualities mark our character and we grow in them, and if we seek to instill them prayerfully, spiritually, in our children, we will not be useless or or unfruitful, and our children won't be either. Our faith has to be a growing faith if we want the faith of our children to be growing. We've been entrusted with a sacred responsibility to shape their character. And we have what we need because God's given it to us. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, I'm grateful tonight that you've given us the pattern that our lives are to emulate and follow. We, we can't do this on our own. But yet you've told us to make every effort. Those words ring in my ears tonight. Make every effort. I pray that each one of us would evaluate our own individual lives, our our parenting styles, our homes, and we would ask ourselves, are we making every effort? Are we giving our best? Are we being intentional to instill these virtues in our children and our grandchildren? And Lord, we realize it's going to be imperfect. We're going to fail along the way. We need a lot of help. And we thank you for grace. But I pray that we would make every effort. Recognizing that we have what we need. You've not left us on our own. You empower us by your spirit. And you give us the pattern to follow. And I pray that this would be true for each one of us. And each one of our children. And our grandchildren that are represented. And God, we want to we want to endure and be found faithful. So help us to that end, and we pray that it would all be for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.